One of the things that I like doing is looking at old pictures, old photo albums of, of my family. Uh, my mom has a lot of those photo albums, and when I go to her house, sometimes we'll pull them out and we'll look at those photos. And, you know, some of them have some black and white pictures in there that go way back. And in those, in those pictures, there are stories that my mom will share about those black and white photos of my, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, even, even further back to that, to as far back as we can trace uh, my group of people. Uh, and, and I love hearing those stories. That's a part of my heritage. It's part of who I am as an individual, and, and I love remembering those stories. And sometimes I'll, I'll see pictures of my, my brothers and I when we were younger, and I get to relive those events, the good and the bad. I get to relive those events. It, it helps keep the story of my family alive. We've uh, pulled out a couple of picture albums of Jesus' family tree. Uh, we've been examining some, uh, some stories from the life of Jesus, some of them not as well known to us as others. We looked at the story of Judah and, and Tamar and, and saw how, how God worked in their flawed relationship. Then last week we looked at the story of Rahab and, and saw how, how God can take a flawed reputation and change it into something good for him. Today, we've been, we're going to look at another story in our series called Flaws in the Christmas Story. And today, we look at the story of Ruth. Uh, it's probably a more familiar story to you than, than the other two we've looked at. And it's one of the great love stories in, in the Bible as we examine this. We're going to look at the story of, of Ruth under the heading, A Flawed Situation. The story of Ruth opens up uh, in, a, in a flawed situation. Listen to verse 1. Of chapter, of chapter 1 of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. So here's the context. The book of Ruth takes place during the time of the judges. It was a time of political instability. It was a time of chaos. It was a time of confusion. They would go from one leader to another with no clear direction of where they're going to go. Many people may think that's where we're at today in the United States. It's a time of uncertainty. We don't exactly know what's going to happen. There's political instability. And in the midst of, of all of this, a tragedy occurs in the town, in the region of Bethlehem, in the nation of Israel. Notice it says that a famine was in the land. And what we see happening here is an economic tragedy. The people began experiencing economic tragedy in the land of Judah. The farmers could no longer plant. They could not grow crops. And those that could grow crops, they were scarce, and they were difficult to grow. Food reached an all-time high, and people did not have money to purchase the food. So there was an environment, an economy going on that was depressing the people and causing problems. So many of us know what that's like. Many of us have, have faced economic hardships in our life. Maybe some of you have, have experienced a wage decrease in the, in the last year, or maybe you're going to experience it this year. Maybe you've had a loss of hours. Maybe some of you have lost a job, and you're seeing uh, that your, your paycheck doesn't go as far as the month, and you're going through a time of economic tragedy in your life. We know what that means. You know, I still haven't recovered from the one we had 
several years ago. I didn't have a whole lot to lose to begin with. Now I have less to lose. The problem is that I haven't recovered from those economic difficulties. This is what was going on in the land of Judah. And so there was a man there by the name of Elimelech. And Elimelech made a hard choice to do something for his family. He said, I can't make a living here. I'm going to move my family somewhere else. So he made the decision to take his wife, Naomi, and his two sons, and they moved to the land of Moab, to a land of opportunity, to a place where he could make a living for his family. It was a difficult decision he made, but it's one that he made in the midst of this economic tragedy. And while he was in the land of Moab, the family experienced personal tragedy. They go there, and the Bible says that Elimelech died. We do not know why Elimelech died. The Bible does not tell us the reason for his death. But at that time, Naomi is left without a husband in a foreign land to raise two children on her own. And remember, in those days, they didn't have a modern welfare system. They had left the land of Judah, so they didn't have a, a, a religious establishment to help them in the midst of their difficulty to take care of widows and orphans. They didn't have that. They were on their own. And she was left to raise two boys on her own. It must have been difficult for her, living in a foreign land amongst foreign people, in a culture she did not understand. But nevertheless, she chose to do it. So she raises the boys, and they reach maturity, and they marry women of Moab. Some people will say this is a personal tragedy as well. You know, you, you do your best to raise your children so they're, they're, they're honor your values and they're honor your, 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 your teachings and they live up to what you told them to do. And then they go out and marry a stranger. They go out and marry somebody that doesn't identify with your culture, that doesn't identify with your values. Some people call that a personal tragedy as well. <clears throat> but they married two women of Moab. And then the story goes on and says that these boys die. Again, the Bible does not tell us why they die. It just says that they die. And Naomi is experiencing the personal tragedy all over again. She's alone. She has no husband. She has no sons. She has no hope. And to make matters worse, she has these two foreign women living in her household that she is responsible for. How did Naomi handle it? How did Naomi handle these tragic events in her life? She became bitter. There's three ways we see that she became bitter in this passage. She became bitter with those closest to her. She decides she's going to return home to Bethlehem. But she's got to do something these tag-along women she's got with her. What is she going to do? Look at verse 11 of this, verses 11 through 13 in this passage. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more, any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. You don't talk about gloom and doom. This is her. This is her, her story. She's saying, you know, there's nothing in this for you. I'm going to go home, back to my people. There's nothing in this for you. You know, if you hang around me, you're just going to become bitter as well. He said, even if I could get married now and have a child tonight, are you going to wait 
until those boys are old enough to marry you? Are you going to stick around that long? He said, no, it's not worth it. And if you hang around me, just as I'm bitter, you're going to become bitter as well. There's nothing in this relationship for you. Tragedy or a flawed situation can make us bitter toward the ones that love us the most. That was true of Naomi. Now Orpah decides to leave. But Ruth was not persuaded. Even though Naomi tried to persuade Ruth uh, to, to, to leave and, and go back to her family, Ruth chose not to do so. Look at verse 18. It says, when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Now this phrase, stop urging, you, urging her, has many scholars debating it because some say that it, it, that, that it interprets that Naomi quit talking to her. Now, if that's true, she was giving Naomi the silent treatment. So imagine this, this two, three, four-day journey that these women are taking all the way to Bethlehem, and Naomi refuses to talk to her the whole time. You know, you can see Ruth going there and saying, Why won't you just talk to me, Naomi? We're in this together. And Naomi's over here. You know, she's bitter. She's upset. He's not going to talk to her. You know exactly what I'm talking about because you've done the same thing, haven't you? You've done that. You get upset with somebody or you get bitter and all of a sudden you take it out on, on those individuals that are closest to you. Perhaps the reason we do that is because it's easier to be angry at somebody that's there than somebody who's not there. So you become angry at those that are closest to you. But not only did she become bitter with those closest to her, it also she became bitter toward others. When they arrive in Bethlehem, the people are excited to see her. Notice Naomi's response in verses 20 through 21. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. She's still fuming. She's still angry. After several days and she's had to reflect upon it, she's still angry. She's still bitter. Her friends and her neighbors, neighbors are happy to see her. But Naomi cannot share in their happiness. She's throwing a pity party. Uh, she's whining. You want to ask her, do you want a little cheese with that wine? She's just whining and, and, and complaining all this time. Naomi is, is saying, don't be happy to see me. My situation is a mess. Here's her policy. If I can't be happy, then you can't be happy either. She wants to bring everyone else down around her. You ever been around people like that? I hate being around people like that. I remember in one church and where I served, we had a, a, an individual in our church that was going through a difficult, difficult time in a marriage and that they were separated and living in, in separate houses and separate, separate places. And she was just bitter and, and she, she would talk about it and talk about it. And, you know, it's gloom and doom. And you almost felt like, can I be happy around this individual? Is she going to be upset if my life is okay? She wanted everybody else around her to experience the bitterness with her. And that's the way we are. If we can't be happy, then we don't want anybody else happy around us. It's depressing. We ask ourselves, is it okay to be happy around these individuals? She became bitter at those closest to her. She became bitter at other people. And finally, she became bitter toward God. Ultimately, what she did, she blamed God. Look at verse 13 in this passage. 
The last part says, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Verse 20, the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Verse 21 again, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. You get in the picture? She's blaming God for her situation. She's blaming God for the bitterness in her life. Now, before we get too hard on Naomi, can we just be honest and say that's what we do too? Well, we take it out on God. Well, we get bitter and angry toward God. When things turn sour, when things turn hard, when things turn difficult, when things turn hurtful, who do we blame? We blame God. It's not right, but that's what we do. You don't believe me? Go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When things didn't go well for, for Adam, what do you do? That, that, that woman you gave me. It's your fault, God. If you didn't give her to me, this never would have happened. Naomi's just taking a script right out of the, old, right out of the, the beginning. Said, God's the one causing all this in my life. You know, perhaps we hide that from others. Maybe inside us we're fuming. But secretly what we're doing is, God, why is this happening to me? God, why are you allowing this to take place in my life? God, why are you allowing me to go through this difficult time? That's what we think. And I know some of you here in this room, you're going through a hard time. You're going through times of difficulty. And you may not utter that out loud, but in the back of mind, you say, I don't understand why God's putting me through this. I don't know why God is doing this. That's what we do. We get angry toward God. We get angry toward others. We get angry toward those closest to us. We become bitter. However, one of the main messages of the book of Ruth is that God is at work even when you don't think he's at work. God is at work even in the worst of times. Even when you think God is farthest from you. Even when you don't think that God can even find you. God is still at work. God is still laying a foundation of greater happiness in your life. That's what the book of Ruth does. The book of Ruth gives us a glimpse of the hidden work of God during the, the worst of times. Now, I've spent a lot of time detailing the tragedies uh, of, of Ruth and, and the tragedies uh, of Naomi. I've talked about their flawed situation, but there's still principles in the story that we can gain, that we can apply to our life. I want to give you three principles real quick. The first one is even in the darkest times, God is still in control. Even in the darkest times, God is still in control. That's hard to grasp. That's hard for us to, to come to, to, to that decision. When we've decided that God is against us, we usually exaggerate our hopelessness. And we become bitter. We become angry. And what we fail to do is we fail to see the light shining behind the clouds. We don't, we don't get the glimmer of light coming out from around the clouds. We don't think we have any hope, any help whatsoever. But hear me on this. If you don't hear anything else I say, hear me on this. Your situation does not change God's control of things. Your situation does not change. Look, God did not wake up one morning and say, all of a sudden, oh my goodness, they're having a bad day. What am I going to do? 
God never caught by surprise. Never. Your situation does not change God's status whatsoever. You need to understand that. You need to grasp that. You may not understand why you're going through a time of difficulty. You may not understand why things aren't good and instead things are bad. But God is still in control. He's still on his throne. And he has not changed because of your situation. Naomi understood this. I know it's hard to believe that even though she was bitter, even though she was taking it out on those around her and even God, it did not affect her belief. Look at verse 6 of this passage. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. It didn't just say she heard that the famine was relented. It says, no, when she heard that the Lord had come to the aid of his people, she was able to recognize that God was still moving. God was still working. God broke through the famine and provided a way for her to return. And Naomi continues her belief, even as she begins to deal with her, her daughter-in-laws by the way she speaks. Remember I told you she's Miss Gloom and Doom. But she can also bear the truth of her beliefs in God by the testimony she gives these women. Look at verse 8 of, of this passage. May the Lord show kindness to you. She's sending them back. May the Lord show kindness to you. Verse 9. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Do you see what's happening? Do you understand what she's doing? Even in the darkest times of her life, she's still able to bless her daughter-in-laws. She's still able to point them to God. She's still able to point them that God is still able to bless you. He may not bless me, but he's able to bless you. She's in a deep depression. Uh, she, she, she's down. But she's still being used by God to convey theological truth to her daughter-in-laws. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe this truth? Do you believe this truth? Even in the midst of your flawed situation, do you believe that God is still in control? Do you believe that? Because if you can't confess that, that God is still in control, you're not in a position where you can get the help that you need to get out of that situation. You've got to recognize that your situation does not change God's control of things. I'm not asking if you understand why this is happening. You may never understand. I'm asking, do you believe that God is in control? That's the key question for you to consider. Second principle in this passage. Even in the darkest times, God will, fight, will provide help to see you through. Even in the darkest times, God will provide help to see you through. Oftentimes, that help will come in a form that we do not expect and we do not think, and that's what happened with Naomi. Look at verse 14 of this passage. Verse 14 says that Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but it says that Ruth clung to her. Verse 15, we see, we see Naomi says, look, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But she chose to stay. It's amazing that after Naomi's grim description of the future, 
that she still clings to her. Remember what Naomi said. It said, look, Ruth, if you come with me, if you come with me, you're going to be husbandless. You're going to be childless. You will have no future whatsoever. That's the picture she painted. But still, Ruth chose to cling to Naomi. She chose to make a life with her. The future was black. They didn't see any way out of this situation. But yet, she chose to stay with her. And then we have these great words in verses 16 and 17 of Ruth. Words have been used in weddings all around the world. Listen to what it says. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Amazing words. Amazing words. And they're even more amazing when you begin to analyze them a little bit. What she's saying here, she says, I'm leaving my family, I'm leaving my land, I'm leaving my homeland to come be with you. She also says, I am choosing to live a life of widowhood and a life of childlessness. I'm going to go to an unknown land. I'm going to new people. I'm going to experience new customs and a new language, and I choose to do that. And the fourth thing we see, she's proposing something even more radical than marriage. As she says, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. She says, I'm never coming home. Never. I'm going to live there until you die, and then when you die, I'm going to die, and I'm going to be buried next to you. I'll never come home. It's a radical decision. It's amazing what she says in the midst of that. But the most amazing thing is when she says, your God will be my God. Now stop and think about that. Naomi has not been the best witness of, a, of believing in God. Even though she's been able to give testimony to the greatness of God. Say, oh, he can be great to you, but he's not great to me. But even in the midst of that, even in spite of Naomi's experience, even in spite of the bitterness that she's experiencing, in spite of all those things, somehow, some way, Ruth came to believe in the God of Naomi. Ruth chose and said, I choose to follow your God. Your God is going to be my God. Even though I, I don't see any hope, even though I don't see anything good coming out of this, I choose to worship your God. And I choose to be a part of your faith people in that situation. Even though all she saw was bitterness. You see, God worked in Ruth to cause a change in her life to bring her alongside Naomi to help Naomi in ways that Naomi had not yet understood. She did not know what lied ahead. Probably Naomi didn't expect any help from God. But yet God put somebody along in her side to help her through. Why? Because God had other plans. God was working behind the scenes to cause something new happen in Naomi and Ruth's life. That leaves the third principle. Even in the darkest times, God still provides for your future. We see that God has took away the famine and he opened a way 
for them to return to Bethlehem. I want you to notice the delicate touch that's given in verse 22 of this passage. If this was a mini-series on television, this is where they would end the first episode. It would end right here. Notice what it says in verse 22. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. You catch that? There's a little glimmer of hope. They were arriving just in time to experience the barley harvest. Just in time. God is setting the stage. God is about to do something amazing in their life. Everything was falling into place, even though they did not see it. Even though they didn't recognize it. The barley harvest was coming. The famine was over. They're going back to Bethlehem where they can experience the blessings of God. God is going to meet them in a tiny, tiny town called Bethlehem. Naomi's emptiness, her spiritual famine is about to be filled. God is about to fulfill Naomi's life as well as Ruth's life. God is setting the stage for a greater future for these individuals. We know what happens if you know anything about the book of Ruth. Ruth goes there and she begins harvesting. She begins gathering barley in the field. And she meets a young man by the name of Boaz. Boaz and Ruth fall in love. Boaz and Ruth have a little boy. We read about this little boy in chapter 4, verse 22. His name is Obed. And it says in chapter 4, verse 22, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. Ah, now we begin to see some things unwinding in this scheme of God's, in this plan of God's. God was working all along. God was going to bring something good out of their flawed situation. They didn't see it, but God was working. We see this truth revealed in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. When we examine the family tree of Jesus, go ahead and turn to Matthew. It'll be on the screen for you, but turn there. You've probably heard these words before. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. But there's more to this story than just connecting Ruth with the family tree of Jesus. There's more than just providing that tie. You see, the birth of Jesus came in a time when people were crying out for a deliverer. They were crying out for hope. They were living in a spiritual famine. God had not spoken to the people of Israel for 400 years. They were living in dark times. They thought God had forgotten them. They thought that God did not care about them. And, and they were living in a darkness, and a spiritual darkness that they could not understand. God, why have you abandoned us? God, why have you turned away from us? This was their experience. Yet in those dark times, God was in control and working things out for the people of Israel. Paul said it this way 
At the appointed time, at the appointed time, at the appointed time, God sent forth his son. In the midst of their despair, in the midst of their heartache, in the midst of their spiritual famine and the darkness, God sent his son. To the people of Israel, God sent his son. God was moving. God was, they thought God wasn't around. But in his divine plan, God was still in control of everything happening. Listen, God is inviting you today to meet him in Bethlehem. I don't care what tragedy you've experienced in your life. I don't care what your situation is. I don't care what difficulty you might be experiencing, what trauma I don't care about the doubts that you may have if God is even aware of your existence. God invites you to meet him. He invites you to come to a place called Bethlehem and meet with his son, Jesus. Maybe that's for the very first time. Maybe for some of you, God's answer to your situation is you need Jesus. You need to accept him. You don't see him moving around you. God says, I've been moving the whole time. You just got to look in the right places. And maybe for the very first time, you simply just need to come to Jesus. You need to come to the babe of Bethlehem, to the Christ of Christmas. And remember, this Christ of Christmas became the Christ of Calvary. And when you don't think God cares... When you don't think God is listening to you, you don't think God has a place for you, all you got to do is look to the cross. That is God's answer to your questions. God says, I love you. I care for you. I am here for you. If you will put your trust and you will put your faith in me. That's what Christmas is all about. Christmas is Emmanuel, God with us. And he came as a tiny baby and he lived a perfect life. But wicked and cruel men crucified him on the cross. But the Bible says that none of this caught God by surprise. It was perfectly planned out in God's time. It says that Jesus was the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world. In other words, God had you in his mind when Jesus Christ went to the cross. All your sins, stop and think about this. Every sin you've ever committed was in the future when Jesus died on the cross. Every sin. And he died for your sins in the past, the present, and the future. Why? So that you might have life with him. All he says is come. Come to me and you'll experience forgiveness and you'll receive grace. For some of you, for the very first time, you need to accept Jesus. The Christ of Christmas, the Christ of Calvary, as your Lord and Savior to get you out of your situation. For others of you, you're a follower of Jesus. But you're not living the way you should. God has a word for you too. He's also in the restoration business. He takes those things that are battered and bruised and, and worn out and he restores them. God, Jesus is the original fixer-upper. Did you know that? Yeah, I know, it's corny. But I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, you will always remember that. Before Chip and JoJo ever made a fortune... Jesus was in the fixing lives. He can still take your, your scarred, battered, and beaten up life and says, hey, I can make you into something of beauty.
Remember, we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not of works, lest any one of us should boast. And we will boast, won't we? Well, look what I did. Look what I accomplished. Jesus said, look what I did. You think that compares? And then I love that last verse. He says, for we are Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, what? To do good works. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Good works. God wants to fix your broken life if you'll give it to Him. In a moment, we're going to have a time when you get to maybe receive some counsel. Maybe you need to pray with someone. You need to have some wisdom. Maybe you need to receive Jesus. I'll be here at the front. Josh and the team are going to come and play. We're going to sing a song. We're going to pray. I'm going to be here at the front. Uh, Brother Kip's going to make his way up. Marcy's going to come down from the back. We'll be here for you. If you want to pray with somebody, you want some counsel, uh, maybe you just need to receive Jesus. We'll be here for you, whatever decision you need to make. Won't you stand with me as I lead us in a time of prayer?